If you take your Bibles open to Acts chapter 12, you're in Acts chapter 12. I'm going to read from Romans chapter 8 that John has been in for a few weeks. A couple of weeks ago, he spoke on this wonderful gift that we have in prayer. Not just that we have the gift of prayer, but that we have help in prayer. I would imagine if I took a survey and spoke to you individually, I would ask, uh, and I ask you, uh, uh, are you good at prayer? You probably would be a little intimidated by the question, and more than likely, if you're honest, you'd say, no, actually, I have a lot to learn. And we all would be in that same situation. But thankfully, we're not alone in our prayers. In Romans 8:26, it says, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what we should pray as we ought. And I think we could all say a collective amen to that, couldn't we? we? Sometimes we're just at a loss what to pray, how to pray. But that's okay. We do not know how, how, what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit Himself makes intercession for us, and He does it with groanings that cannot be uttered. We utter what we can, and I'm sure Joseph Scriven did, at those losses that he was experiencing when he wrote his hymn. But we have the same help. That's a marvelous, marvelous gift. The gift of prayer itself is just overwhelming when you think about the reality of it. I like what Charles Spurgeon said about uh, this passage in Hebrews 4.16, where it says we, find, we go to the throne of grace to find grace to help in time of need. And the way he described it is that God gives grace for imperfect prayers. Aren't we glad? I'm glad God gives grace for imperfect prayers because I'm not a perfect prayer. I've got a long way to go. The more I involve myself in prayer and the magnitude of it, the beauty of it, the commonality of it, uh, the more I'm overwhelmed by the miracle it is. That's why for 33 years we've gathered with a small group of people in the library and we just pray. We pray for those requests that are turned in. We pray for one another. Pray for requests that are brought up because we believe in prayer. Conversation with God Almighty, the creator of the universe. You know, there's something almost paradoxical about prayer. Prayer is one of the most common, unnatural activities we can engage in. Let me explain what I mean. It's common in that it's one of our natural responses when we're in a crisis. And that's true whatever religion you are, whatever background you are. If you're in a crisis, if our nation is in a crisis, what happens? The president himself will talk about praying. People of all kinds of faiths and backgrounds will assure we're praying for you. When there's a great loss in in a hurricane or a tornado or some natural disaster, when you and I are in a personal crisis, even people who are not people of faith will cry out, Oh God, help me! It'll be almost a natural response. It's one of the most common things we can do. But as a believer in Christ, as a believer that God exists, that He is involved, that He cares about what goes on in our lives, it is one of the most supernatural things you can do because you're actually calling to to one that you know who is outside of you, outside of the limits of this world, this material system. And we believe that when we call on Him, it makes a difference. That He can and He will intervene. So it's one of the most common, most unnatural things, one of the most supernatural things we can do. I think we all sense our limitations in it. So this passage in in Romans really is a great, great encouragement. Let me ask you this. Have you ever 
been in a situation where maybe you were hurting physically and you're asking the Lord for help, for healing, or maybe you were hurting relationally and you're asking for restoration, reconciliation, or maybe you were hurting financially and you were in great need and you're asking the Lord to do something to take care of that need. And then you've gone to the doctor or you've took some medication or you just start feeling better. Or you find that the person you're having the difference with has extended forgiveness to you and the relationship is healed. Or that financial need, uh, someone you, you just least expected gave you a gift that helped take care of that need. And you see those things happening through natural means and, and you think, my, well, how, how good these doctors are, how good this medicine works, or how kind this person was to have forgiveness in their heart toward me, or how gracious that person was that provided that gift. And you kind of go on, and then suddenly the Spirit of God convicts you and you realize that was answered prayer. At first, you just attributed it to normal, natural results, but then you realize, I have prayed, and God worked. Sometimes we're surprised by answer prayer, aren't we? Acts chapter 12 is a, is a magnificent statement on this. This is a, this is a fun story, uh, a convicting story, but I want to look at this with you this morning. So if you're in, in Acts 12, uh, let's pick up, and I, I want to read uh, verse 1 through 17. And um, so... Just follow along with me. It's, it's a wonderful story. Set in, a, in a, around the early 40s A.D., 41 to 42, 43, uh, Herod Agrippa was king at that time. Now, just to give you a little historical setting and something about this man, uh, Herod Agrippa was the grandson of Herod the Great. Herod the Great, we know, because he was the one ruling at the time of Christ when Christ was crucified and when the young children were killed. But this was normal protocol for this man because he was paranoid about his position and his power. When you look at history, you find that Herod the Great uh, was almost maniacal in his desire to hold on power. He had five wives at different times and a large number of children. His favorite wife was Miriam I. But he began to get suspicious that maybe she was conspiring with her two sons to maybe take over the throne. So he had his favorite wife executed and both her sons. One of those sons was the father of Herod Agrippa I that we're reading about today. And so when we read about this man, we see that, you know, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. And so he has some of the same type of attitudes, not quite as maniacal as his grandfather, but uh, some of the same kind of thing. And we'll talk about him again as we close in a, in a few moments, but, well, maybe not a few moments, honestly. It's going to be a little longer than that, but let's pick up chapter 12, verse 1. Now, about that time, Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some of the church. Now, we're going to read about a, a couple of them, but it says some, so there are more than just the ones we'll read about. And the word harass means to vex, it actually to do harm is the idea. Then he killed James, the brother of John with a sword, And notice this, and because it pleased the Jews, this is the ruling Jewish hierarchy. It's not a condemnation of Jews in general. Peter was a Jew, Christ was a Jew, John was a Jew, James was a Jew. So it's just talking about the ruling hierarchy in Judaism at that time. Because it pleased the Jews 
he proceeded further to seize Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread. Does that sound familiar? At the time of Christ, when was he crucified? During the days of unleavened bread. So this was, this was a time of great Jewish celebration, and this would be a great time to make points with the Jewish people as far as Herod was concerned. By the way, Herod himself was, was part Jew. He had Jewish blood uh, and Greek blood. And so it says in verse 4, when he had arrested him, that's when he had arrested Peter, he put him in prison, delivered him to four squads of soldiers to keep him, intending to bring him uh, before the people after Passover. Doesn't that seem a little bit like overkill? You've got four squads of soldiers. Typically, you'd have people guarding outside uh, the, the prison, and you'd have one soldier and to be chained uh, by one hand to one soldier. But when you know the history of Acts, you know in Acts chapter 5, Peter was arrested, and what happened? He was miraculously released. Herod said, uh-uh, we're not going to take a chance on that. And so he puts two soldiers on either side. He's chained on both sides. He has a squad of soldiers outside the room, a squad of soldiers outside before the gate uh, that exits the prison grounds. So he, he was going to make sure this man was not released like he was last time and create more trouble. And then verse 5 says, Peter was therefore kept in prison in this condition we just described. But, circle that word, three little letters, but, constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. And when Herod was about to bring him out, that night Peter was sleeping, bound with two chains between two soldiers and the guards before the door were keeping, prison, keeping the prison. Is God limited by circumstances? A sea that seems uncrossable, the Red Sea? Being bound by squads of soldiers in a prison? God's not limited. Now behold, an angel of the Lord stood before him, or stood by him, that's by Peter. A light shone in the prison. This was a dark place, middle of the night. He struck Peter on the side, and just follow along. You have to smile when you read this. He bends down. This is the angel of the Lord, the messenger of God. He comes into the prison room, and he taps Peter on the side. Peter's sound asleep. Taps him on the side and, and, and raised him up. He said, get up, quick. The chains fell off his hands. The angel said to him, get your clothes on. Put on your shoes. Tie your shoes. And so he did. And he said, now put on your, your garment, evidently a coat, since this was springtime, and in that part of the world like here, it was pretty chilly, especially at night. And so Peter did all that, and says, verse 9, so he went out and he followed him, Peter following the angel, but he did not know that what was done by the angel was real, but he thought he was seeing a vision. Now just a couple of chapters back, Peter had seen a vision. He was on top of a roof at night, uh, during the day, at lunchtime, waiting for, for his lunch, and the Lord showed him a vision, this great carpet or sheet falling down from heaven, having all kinds of animals in it to show him that God loved Jew and Gentile. This was a paradigm shift for Peter. He thought maybe something like that was happening. The recent experience was coming back to him. But that's not what it was. We know verse 10 says, when they were past the first and second guard post, they came to an iron gate. Well, that's a problem, but not for the Lord, not for the angel came to the iron gate, which opened of its own accord. They went out, went down one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. 
So they go out the prison and turn, go down the street, and suddenly, no more angel. I don't know whether the angel, again, it means a messenger of God, whether he said, okay, Peter, that's it, you're free, or you're on your own, or he just, poof, was gone. We don't know. But the angel was no longer there. And so when Peter, had, verse 11, when Peter had come to himself, he said, Now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and has delivered me from the hand of Herod and from all the expectation of the Jewish people. Now let me stop here just a moment. Just like the songs we sung can be seen by some people as pie in the sky and wishful thinking, uh, when we read things like this, our minds start going. If we're thinking people and we say, yeah, this just seems a little far-fetched. So we stand back from that just a moment and we say, do we believe in miracles or not? And we say together as believers in Christ, yes, we do. That's the reason we pray. If you do not believe that God can and will intervene, then why even mess with prayer? Why is this such an automatic response whenever we're in crisis and we call out for some kind of intervention? It doesn't make sense. So, if God could create the universe, and this goes back to that essential question of is God creator or not, if God could create the universe in its magnitude and its minuteness, and if he could sustain it as he does, is a prison and locked doors a problem for him? See, it's, it's all according to what we believe about the existence of God, the existence of the universe, and why life is and how it is sustained. Is it, are we here by accident, by natural means, within a closed system, or is there a God external to all of that whom we can address and call on who can intervene? We believe collectively together, yes, prayer is a miraculous activity, even in its commonness. And so it's no problem for Peter to come to the realization God has intervened here. God is the one who has done this. Verse 12 says, So when he had considered this, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark. Notice where many were gathered together praying. A little side note here again, because it helped, it's helpful to know the people involved. By the way, we're doing our finishing up our Sunday night Bible study methods, and those are the part of that you'll know how important it is to ask questions about who, what, when, where, how. And so uh, come tonight, enjoy... Uh, Bring along something to eat, some soup or sandwiches or whatever, and enjoy the time as we discuss Philemon and ask some of these questions about that book. But here we have Mark, whose surname, I mean, have John, whose surname was Mark. This is John Mark, the one who later went with Paul and Silas on a trip and left and kind of stepped aside from the ministry, was later drawn back in and eventually wrote the Gospel of Mark. This was his mother's house where these people were gathering together praying. All these complicated, intricate relationships, just like you and I experience in this church. And so they were together together praying, and so what does Peter do? He knocked at the door of the gate. The gate was locked, and so this young girl, named Rhoda, came to answer the door. She heard the knock. Maybe they sent her, we don't know, but they were praying. She goes to the door, and, and this is, again, it's just, you have to smile when you read this says, when she recognized Peter's voice, because, she, because of her gladness, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter stood before the gate. So here's Peter. Peter's knocking, 
and said, oh, it's Peter, it's Peter. So she runs back in. I mean, she's just overcome with joy that he's there. And they said, and she said, it's Peter. He's at the door. He's knocking. And they said, great, answer prayer. That's exactly what we've been praying for. Wonderful. Is that the response? No, it says, you're crazy. You're beside yourself. That's literally, one translation says, you're mad. You're, you're, You're out of your mind. So what are they praying about? Why are they praying? To whom are they praying? What are they expecting? You're beside yourself. Yet she kept insisting that it was so. And then they said, well, it's his angel. Now, you tell me. I'm just curious enough. If I really think it's his angel, am I going to stay praying? Or am I going to go find what this angel looks like? You're going to go to the door, aren't you? So they just keep on, get quiet, get quiet. It's it's his angel. You're, You're seeing something. And so they keep praying. Peter's still at the door knocking. And, uh, you know, he's, is he thinking at this time, you know, I just got out of prison. I I don't want to go back. Who knows what's going through his mind, but he's continued knocking. And then they open the door. Everybody goes to the door and they open the door and says they're astonished. We get our word ecstasy from this. They are surprised by the answered prayer, but they're thrilled. They're ecstatic at answered prayer. And it says, then Peter, motioning with his hand, they, they were all excited. Everybody's talking, as you can expect. And he, he said, be quiet, be quiet. Let me explain what happened here and what you need to do. So he declared to them how the Lord had brought, them out of, brought him out of the prison. He says, now go tell these things to James and the brethren. And he departed and went to another place. End of story. Well, not quite. But let, let's think about it just a moment. And then uh, add a few other thoughts here. Peter's in a crisis. The church is in a crisis. There's great attack taking place. Herod has them in his, uh, in his scope. And he's doing everything he can to gain favor of the Jews because he was not, he was, he was not completely supported by the Jewish people because he was part Jew. He was not full Jew. And because he was close to Claudius and the, the emperor of Rome... And he walked a political tightrope. And so he would do everything he could to gain favor of the Jewish leadership, the Sanhedrin, the 70 elders of Israel at that time. And so this is what he's doing here with both James and Peter. And, and so they're in a crisis. The church is in a crisis. Peter is in a crisis. James has just been executed. And so what do they do? They gather together and pray, which is exactly what we ought to do whenever we face crisis. We ought, to, we ought to pray without ceasing. In fact, the Lord taught us, and when you look in, in Luke chapter 18, he, he told a beautiful story about a, a, a poor widow who was in a very difficult situation making an appeal to an unjust judge. And the, the bottom line of the story, we ought always to pray and not faint, not stop, not get discouraged. And so prayer is the first line of defense for the church. It's the first line of offense for the church. It's so with you and me personally. Prayer ought to be as natural as breathing. But prayer at the same time is as supernatural as the God of the universe intervening. It's incredible, isn't it? Or you just kind of yawn in prayer. This is, this, it's a fantastic relationship we have. God is relational. He's about conversation. He's about communication. He's about faith and trust, as we've been learning in the book of, of, uh, of Romans. 
He's about helping us even to pray when we don't know how to pray our imperfect prayers. And so it's the first line of defense, the first line of offense. Let's think about this just for a moment with the situation with Peter, and then I want to tack on some bookends. It says when the angel came to Peter, he was sound asleep. He had to be awakened. Now, I don't know about you, but if my good friend James has just been executed and I'm in prison and I'm surrounded by guards, I think I'm going to be a little worried. I think I'm going to be a little upset. And he probably knew that he was going to be brought before the king the next day after Passover. What in the world is this man doing asleep? Why was he sleeping? Was it the sleep of indifference like Jonah in the bottom of the boat? Was it the sleep of exhaustion because he was just worn out? It could be. It's obviously a possibility. Or was it the sleep of peace like Christ when he was in the boat in the midst of the storm and they had to wake him up to calm the storm? I think it probably was that. And how did that come about? Clue. He had a lot of people praying for him. Do you really believe that your prayers here affects that situation or that person there? Or you just pray because you're supposed to pray? Your prayers, or lack of them, my prayers, or lack of them, has an impact on you and your peace, the clarity of your thinking, the things that go on in your life. If we do not believe that, then why even pray? It's just an activity. It's a religious thing to do. But we're talking about real relationship here, and I believe because these people were praying, it had impact on Peter's emotional, physical well-being at that time. Our prayers impact the peace and rest of others. And yes, even our imperfect prayers. By the way, you notice it says here that Peter got out of Dodge, so to speak, at, at the end of verse 18, he, he departed and went to another place. You go back to Acts chapter 5, what did he do? Well, the angel woke him up there, or, or, or arranged the release there, and said, now you go back to the temple and start preaching again. So you, you don't put the Lord's work in a box, do you? He may work this way this time, and another way another time. So Peter left to go tell James the leadership what's taking place. And that way they'll be better prepared for whatever might come next. Listen to, to the words of Spurgeon as he speaks about imperfect prayers. He says, if in prayer I come before a throne of grace, he's going back to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, uh, that we come to the throne of grace. Interesting description. To find grace, undeserved mercy, and help in time of need. And so, with this in mind, this is what Spurgeon has to say. If I come before a throne of grace, then the faults of my prayer will be dealt with. Sometimes when we pray, we feel ineffective. It says the groanings of our spirit when we rise from our knees are such that we think there's nothing in them. But what a blurred, blotted, smeared prayer it was. Never mind. You've not come to the throne of justice. Otherwise, when God perceived the fault in the prayer, He would spurn it. Your broken words, your gaspings, your stammering are before a throne of grace. Our condescending king does not maintain a stately etiquette in his court like that which has been observed by princes among men. 
where a little mistake or flaw would secure the petitioners being dismissed in disgrace. Oh no, the faulty cries of his children are not severely criticized by him. The Lord High Chamberlain of the palace above, our Lord Jesus Christ, takes care to alter and amend every prayer that is presented. He makes the prayer perfect with his perfection and prevalent with his his own merits. And how thankful we are for that. God looks upon prayer as presented through Christ, and he forgives the inherent weaknesses and faultiness. How this ought to encourage any of us who feel ourselves feeble, wandering, and unskilled in prayer. If you cannot plead with God as you sometimes did in years gone by, if you feel as if somehow or other you had grown rusty in the work of supplication, never give up. But still come. Come more often. For it is not a throne of severe criticism, but a throne of grace to which you come. Now, they receive answered prayer, didn't they? The church is gathered in their prayer. And they receive answered prayer. They were ecstatic about it. They were astonished. And I'm sure when they gathered back together after Peter was gone, they said, God answered our prayer. Success. However, when we come to the throne of grace and when God perfects our imperfect prayers, does that mean we always know what the outcome is going to be? Let's go to the first part, the the front bookend of this chapter. Chapter 12, again, verse 1. Now about that time, Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some of the church. Then he killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. Wait, 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 wait. Peter is released at least twice, been in prison three times, released twice miraculously, and James is killed? Well, that's because God didn't care for James. He didn't like James. And the church didn't pray for him because they didn't like James. Is that what it is? Don't you think the church that was praying for Peter prayed for James? I think it's safe to assume, don't you? See, we, we tend to think of answer prayer as having a positive, successful outcome. But I think it's reasonable that the church was praying for James, that God loved James just as much as he loved Peter. The Christians cared just as much for James as they did Peter. And that God's hands weren't tied in James' situation just as it wasn't in Peter's. The biggest question is, did God answer prayer in both cases? You have to answer that yourself. I would say yes, he answered prayer in both cases. Now think about who's involved here. James, there are two Jameses named in chapter 12, right? The first James, the one who was executed, is the brother of John. Now, the brother of John and, I mean, uh, John and James are the ones who were called by the Lord uh, to be his disciples. You read about that in Matthew 4, 21. They're called sons of thunder. They had a a bit of an edge to them. Uh, They wanted to call down fire from heaven to destroy some (laughs) some unbelievers. So they had some learning and growing to do. And because John became the apostle of love and we read him in his more mature years, Uh, we find that he did learn and grow through this. This was also the two boys whose mother went and said, Hey, Lord, would you mind (laughs) if uh, my sons had a favorite place when you come into your kingdom? And and he had to correct her and them concerning that. that. That's who we're talking about here. So this is James. 
John is still living. Don't you think John loved his brother? They're, they're named together just like Peter and Andrew. Don't you think they love one another and care for one another, serving the Lord together, traveling, learning from the Lord together? And suddenly, very unjustly, James, his brother, is executed. Do you think he ever got over that? Do you ever get over the death of someone you love? When people say, well, time will heal or you'll get over it. No, you won't because they're a part of you. This apostle carried this with him the rest of his life and it impacted his life. I believe positively. It brought him to a greater sense of faith. And so, what we have in the first few verses is the fact that we can pray with confidence in God's answer. We can pray with confidence in God's answer. Underline God's answer. We can not, it's not that we determine this is the outcome that I want, this is the outcome I expect, and therefore I have enough faith I can make it happen. There's a faulty way of praying that's being taught in that regard. You can have utter confidence in God's answer. Let, let me just give you a scenario and ask you to think of this. Let's say you, it's, it's uh, summertime and there's a Christian conference on the coast, uh, say of South Carolina, and maybe Myrtle Beach. And, uh, and it's coming to the end of the week, but then there's a storm predicted to come in, a hurricane. And, uh, and it's looking worse and worse all along. And so much so that they have to cut the conference short, they have to have people evacuate. And so people are on the road, there are people all over the place, it's clogged, and folks are having tr- trouble getting out, you're constantly on the, on the phone and you're hearing about this, and the storm is moving down, and it's going to be devastating by the predictions. And so you gather a group of people, maybe you gather your church, your family, and you pray. You pray constantly that, Lord, protect them, help them to, help them to get out, help the, the traffic jam to loosen up, and, and you get word that your family made it out, and they're safe, and they're okay. And, and in a day or so, you see them. And so you're thrilled at answered prayer. What you don't know is that there's another Christian family that's been praying for their family that have been to this conference. They're on the way out. They're caught in the traffic jam, and the storm hits. One of the people dies, a couple are in the hospital with injuries, and the rest are okay. Now, whose prayers were answered? Well, my prayers were because I prayed for my family and I had more faith. Really? Does Acts chapter 12 and the way these people are praying for Peter and their response, is that an example of people who had absolute confidence in the outcome? These people prayed imperfect prayers. They prayed, and their, their faith didn't look complete and strong there, did it? So does that mean that we're, we don't pray in faith? No, we pray with absolute confidence in God's answer. But when you read what happened to James, we also know that we're to pray with a humble trust in God's timing and God's wisdom. You see, in relationship and in prayer, we're not saying this is the outcome I want, so this is what I'm going to pray toward, and I'm going to convince God to do it. That's not faith. Faith is saying, I believe in God's wisdom. I believe in His goodness. I believe in His justice. I believe in His power and His intervention, and I'm going to pray and trust Him to work in this situation. For Peter, it was release. For James, it was death. Same thing happened with John the Baptist, right? In fact, he even asked the Lord, sent word, Lord, are you the one? 
I mean, he, he was the forerunner of Christ. They said, now, are you really the one? And the Lord sent back evidence. And then he said, blessed is the man who does not stumble because of me. In other words, because of the way I work or quote-unquote don't work. The word stumble is the word we get our word scandalized from it. Blessed are those who are not scandalized at the way God chooses to work or not work. See, that's faith also. That's faith in the character, the nature, the goodness, the power of God. But then we see the other end, the other book end as we close. If you go back to the end of the book, verse 18, it said, As soon as it was day, there was no small stir among the soldiers about what had become of Peter. But when Herod had searched for him and not found him, he examined the guards and commanded they should be put to death. This was standard protocol in that culture. If you're guarding someone, you, if, if they get loose, you get the penalty that was going to be ex, uh, uh, given to them. And so these guards who had been, been with Peter, perhaps they heard the gospel from him. I hope so. They were put to death by Herod. And then he goes from his place in Judea, goes down to the coast, Caesarea, or goes up to the coast. It says, now Herod had been very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. So that put people of Tyre and Sidon in a difficult position. So they made arrangements, it says here, having made Blastus the king's personal aid their friend, they asked for peace because their country was supplied with food by the king's country. So we got to stay on this guy's good side politically because he's the one that makes sure that we, we have food in the stores and we can have food on the table. And so they... They did a political move. They made Blastus, the, the king's friend, their friend, and they curried favor with Herod. It was a political move. So on a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, sat on his throne, gave an oration to them, and the people kept shouting, The voice of a god, not of man. Then immediately the angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God, and he was eaten by worms and died. That's gross. <laughs> He says, nah, it's a little far-fetched. Actually, you can read Josephus, a Jewish historian who was living at this time, who describes exactly what happened here. And, and he talks about this speech that, that Herod gave. He, he actually had manipulated it. So he, he wore this silver robe, this robe that had silver threads through it. And he did it in the morning sun so the sun would reflect off the threads and it would produce an aura about him. And he gave this speech. We don't know what the content of the speech was, but the people were saying, the voice of a God, not of a man. And I can just imagine some in the crowd are saying, boy, he loves this. He loves The voice of a God, not of a man. He's eating it up. He's eating it up. Because that's the way people are and that's the way political leaders are who are trying to hold on to their power and be presented as something they're not. But as Josephus says, when he was making that speech, He was suddenly attacked with deep pain in his stomach and in his intestines, so much so that he had to stop the speech, they had to carry him off. And five days later, he passed away. Some kind of internal uh, intestinal problem. Maybe tapeworms? We don't know. But not only does the Scripture give the accurate story, but Josephus uh, gives extra. So the point here is that we pray with absolute confidence in God's answer. We pray trusting Him for His wisdom, and we pray convinced, convinced of God's ultimate justice. 
You see, Herod thought he had won. Herod thought he was something. But the Lord showed him who really was and is king of kings and lord of lords. The soldiers who were guarding Peter. Justice was carried out on them. This is the Lord's hand. So in Herod's kingdom, he was brought to his knees. Just as God did it with Pharaoh, just as God did it with Nebuchadnezzar, just as God did it with other rulers. The heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. He can turn it wherever he will, when and how he chooses to. That ought to give us great encouragement and confidence as we pray for things in our nation and as we see all the political machinations and the stuff that goes on. It was going on then. There's nothing new under the sun. So we can pray convinced of God's ultimate justice. We just don't know when he's going to carry it out, but he will. He will. That's his promise. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? But what about in God's kingdom? What took place? Well, Herod wanted to stop the spread of the word. Verse 24 closes saying, but the word of God grew and multiplied. And that's a statement that appears over and over in the book of Acts. So, we close with this very simple thought, again from Spurgeon, that God gives grace for imperfect prayers. These people were not perfect in their praying, but God worked. That doesn't mean we say, okay, well, it doesn't matter how I pray. Sure, we ought to be always in the school of prayer daily. If we're to pray without ceasing, we ought to continue to learn and be growing in faith. But hopefully this example and these truths will help us mature and be better equipped in our own prayers, and more at peace with how we pray. And with that in mind, let's pray. Let's bow together. The essence of prayer is faith, that I believe in God's character, I believe in His power, that I really do believe in His grace. I don't deserve an answer, but He gives an answer. It's just the same with the gift of eternal life through Christ. It's not earned by how perfectly we behave or how well we do or how religious we are. We all come before God's tribunal as guilty, as unworthy, as helpless to do anything to change our condition. As John likes to say, we have a debt that we cannot pay and we have a righteousness that we cannot earn. That's why Ephesians 2, 8, 9 is so critical. It's by grace that we are saved through faith. It's not of ourselves. It's the gift of God based on the finished work of Christ, not of ourselves, not of works, lest any one of us should boast. And so if you have any questions about that truth, that beginning foundational truth of walking as a Christian, you have to become a Christian first, and that's through the finished work of Christ Christ, and trusting Him and Him alone, knowing that you're sinful and unworthy, but His work is finished and perfect and done for you. And then as we walk with the Lord in this beautiful relationship and gift of communication and prayer, to know that His grace is ongoing and aiding us and learning and growing as a Christian and learning to pray. Father, thank You. Thank You for this enormous, gracious gift of prayer. Thank You for this wonderful example and story that we have in Scripture. These people who walked this path before us, may we learn from their example, as the scriptures say in Hebrews, this great cloud of witnesses. Thank you, Father. Thank you for Christ our Savior. Thank you for the gift of eternal forgiveness through Christ. Thank you for the 
privilege and pleasure of walking with you day to day and the extraordinary, supernatural, daily gift of communication with you. Lord, teach us to pray. We ask in the name of Christ. Amen.